Once upon a time, a long time ago, we spent some time telling you about the sorts of people you tend to find in a typical adventure-based pseudo-medieval town. Back in 2015, we talked about the village smith and how they work with various metals to turn them into things like plowshares and swords. Then in July of 2016, we discussed the leather worker and tanner and how medieval leather armor doesn't really exist. Almost a year later, we met the alchemist and discovered not only what a mess they were in Dungeons and & Dragons and Pathfinder, but why they were such a big mess. After that, there was a bit about chirurgeons and barbers, and our episode on willow bark that was really about the herbalist and early aspirin. Now, you might be tempted to think that covered just about everything you could possibly need or want in your tabletop game. And judging by the way we inconsistently brought the subject up and then abandoned it three or four years ago, we thought it was too. But boy, were we wrong. Because you see, there's one job in any given medieval town that the town simply cannot do without. You can have towns with no blacksmiths or tanners or alchemists or even chirurgeons or herbalists, but only if you have this other fellow. The one we had totally forgotten to cover because they were, quite literally, everywhere. Fortunately, all it took to remind us was an internet comedian. Well, to be fair, Alasdair Beckett King is a little more than just an internet comedian. He is, in fact, a full-fledged comedian who bears a striking resemblance to every picture you've ever seen of John the Baptist. At the end of his career, not the middle bits. He's been on TV and won numerous awards, including some that say he was a comedian of the year, and others that say he amused a moose, though we're unsure whether that was the North American sort of moose or the European sort. The reason you probably haven't heard of him is that A, you don't pay attention when we retweet and link you to things, and B, he works primarily in Britain, which is a place the majority of our listeners are not. But the internet is pretty much international. Sure, there are some islands in the South Pacific that still don't get it, but increasingly, they don't count. And so almost everyone can look up Mr. ABK, as he is known on Twitter, and see what he does. Which increasingly, is to try to survive the whole pandemic thing by making short, funny videos which illustrate amusing tropes found in a variety of different media. Also, he makes the occasional video game and a regular podcast which we quite enjoy called The Loremen, about the lore and legends of the United Kingdom and some of the bits that aren't entirely as united as they could be. We're sure you, the tabletop gaming listener, would find it quite informative were you to sample some episodes. It could even be your second favorite podcast. In any case, his most recent video at the time of this writing features a situation we, and we suspect you, are all too familiar with and you'll likely have run across this particular scenario in one of two ways. Either gathered around a table, character sheet clutched in one hand and a very small sack of coin in the other, or as the sole owner of the Skyrim Cheese Wheel Cartel, out to finally make a killing. If you could just stop being killed every time you stick your head past the town gate. What you want is to interact with the one person in town who can, by virtue of their job, more or less substitute for any other so-called essential service. 
And sure, maybe the whole interaction is fraught with trouble, as Beckett King so delightfully illustrates in a video we're sure you're just dying to watch by now, but more often than not, the whole thing goes pretty smoothly, and you end up with either the essential gear you need to go about your successful career as an adventurer, or another 17 cheese wheels to add to your collection. Either way, our man of the hour doesn't mind. His only concern is that he be paid for not only all the goods you purchased from him, but also all the trouble he's gone to collecting them from both near and far. He's the merchant, and for the right price, he can get you almost anything you want. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. One of the first things we need to do is clarify the difference between a shopkeeper and a merchant. The shopkeeper is the person in charge of a retail establishment who is responsible, usually on behalf of someone else, for seeing to the day-to-day -day operations. They take stock, count the receipts, and generally make sure that things run smoothly. At least until the adventurers show up, after which point all their usual tasks become much harder to do with a pot over their head or a sword at their throat. Honestly, some adventurers just have no sense of decorum. Any shop, stall, or other regular retail location is more than likely run by a shopkeeper of some sort. Often they're called a manager, especially when working on behalf of a larger corporation. The merchant, on the other hand, is a fellow of a different breed. Merchants run a shop, if they have any sort of permanent location, strictly for their own benefit. They own the goods and services on offer themselves, and any profits they make from their sales are theirs alone. They keep their own hours and offer a selection of items they have usually picked for themselves. And you'd never catch a merchant with a pot over their head, because if there is one thing they pride themselves on, it is their ability to correctly read a customer in order to provide the best possible profit for their efforts. Merchants is often moved from town to town peddling their wares as they do set up a regular fixed location. And really resourceful merchants will make use of shopkeepers to run any such place. And frankly, merchants have been with us a long, long time. Practically since someone first noticed he had more pots than he needed and not enough sheep. Now, we know some of you get a bit nervous when we start talking about economics and how it works. But we promise there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just that we might have to say the word fungible a couple of times. No, no, come back. It'll be okay. We promise. See, merchants deal mostly in commodities, that is, resources, that are more or less all identical to one another. One sheep looks pretty much like another when it comes right down to it. Mostly, they all eat a lot of grass, produce a lot of wool, turn into roughly the same amount of meat at mealtime, and produce an equivalent unit of sheep during the spring, setting aside the two-part nature of the process. Even more so with pots. All pots of a given size hold the same volume of stuff, are made in generally the same manner of roughly the same material, and perform identical functions. There's not a lot of difference from one pot to another. And yes, for the purposes of this discussion, we are ignoring many things that might make one pot or sheep different from another. Just assume we are talking about ur-pots and ur-sheep. This means pots are, like sheep, fungible. A sheep is a sheep is a sheep. A pot is a pot is a pot. That's all fungible means. 
A commodity is fungible if one unit of the good is substantially equivalent to another unit of the same good of the same quality at the same time, place, etc. It has literally nothing to do with mushrooms. Completely different root words. Fungible comes from the same Latin root that gave us function and defunct, not the one that gave us fungus. Anyway, what a fungible commodity does is not only allow you to trade one of a thing for another of the same thing in an equivalent trade, because both identical things have the same value, but also trade one of a thing for a set amount of some other thing based on the value of both things. Back to sheep and pots. One sheep is worth one sheep. You can trade them straight across, no problem, they're effectively the same thing. One pot is worth one pot. Again, they are effectively equivalent. But the tricky bit is, what if Bob the potter has some extra pots but needs a sheep? And what if Alice the shepherdess has an extra sheep but needs some pots? The obvious thing is for them to trade their commodities. Except, how many pots are worth a sheep? Or is it, how many sheep are worth a pot? And how do you decide? It feels like a sheep should be worth more than a single pot. After all, you can get lots of things from sheep, including more sheep. But a pot just has one or two functions and is really bad at making more of itself. On the other hand, a pot well cared for can last a really long time. When you're done using a sheep, all you have left is a dead sheep waiting to be buried. When you're done using a pot, you have an empty pot you can fill up with something else. How do you set the sheep to pot exchange rate? Well, mostly what you do is you get together a bunch of people who make pots and need sheep, and a bunch of people who tend sheep and need pots. And then you start the bidding at one pot for one sheep and see where things end up. In most cases, this new commodity market you've just created will settle itself at the generally agreed upon point where no one wants to offer more pots for the sheep on offer, and no one else wants to offer more sheep for the pots on offer. Run the auctions in two different rooms, of course, but you should end up in about the same place. Or close enough for our purposes. You'll have found how many pots are equal to how many sheep, and that tells you, in a very simplified way, we hasten to add, about your exchange rate. And no, we're not going to discuss blockchains and non-fungible tokens and how commodities are commodities only because all of the individual units that make up the commodity are substantially equivalent and interchangeable, and that NFTs break the commodity market for one particular unit by getting everyone to pretend it is unique in its own special way and therefore worth more than all the other otherwise identical units of that commodity. Nope, not going to discuss that at all. Sadly, we do appear to have deviated somewhat from our initial topic, for which we do so apologize. Merchants. Merchants and commodities. Right. So, now that a value has been set between pots and sheep, but really between any two different things and each other, as well as all the other things that are exchanged for either of the initial two things, say, exchanging one sheep for ten pots and then exchanging five pots for a sack of grain, which gives us an exchange rate of half a sheep to one sack of grain, by way of random example, now that the value has been set, the merchant can enter the picture. What happens is that sometimes all the people in Hooterville who want sheep have all the sheep they want, and all the people in Hooterville who want pots have all the pots they want. So the market for both pots and sheep dries up. 
The potter has no incentive to make more pots because no one wants them. And he doesn't need any sheep anyway. Which also means there are a lot of excess sheep suddenly running around that many, many people wish would go away somewhere else very soon indeed. Well, soon enough, along comes Stephen, the merchant. He looks around and sees that there are a lot of sheep standing around doing not much of anything. However, they're all standing next to some pretty decent pots, and those are pretty keen too. So Stephen, the merchant, tells the people of Hooterville that he knows of a place across the mountains called Whiterun that is in desperate need of pots. Seems the shopkeepers keep breaking them for some crazy reason. Oh, and also, the people in a place way up north along the coast called, what was it again? Oh yeah, Icewind Dale need a lot of wool for their socks to keep their toes warm. If only there were some arrangement they could come to that means the people of Hooterville get rid of some sheep and pots, and the people elsewhere can have more pots for their heads and wool for their toes. Well, it turns out there is. The merchant's role is to take up the slack generated by too many pots, too many sheep, by exchanging money or sacks of grain from places that need pots and or sheep. That is, the merchant takes things that place A has extras of to a place B that wants it, and exchanges them for things place B has too much of that place A wants. At least, that's half the job, because so far, that's just a trader. No, the extra step to being a merchant is the ability to make their own market. In other words, rather than just trading a set good for a set other good, sheep for pots, the merchant will trade or sell almost anything for most any other thing. Sheep for pots, sure, if that's what you've got, but also sheep for wheat, sheep for cheese, sheep for hammers and socks and cloth and stools and whatever else you might make or produce that can be said to have any sort of value and that vaunted fungibility. And that value and fungibility is what makes it possible to trade any one commodity for any other commodity and arrive at approximately equivalent values, all things being equal. But often, all things are not equal. Sure, the commodities have an equivalent value, but what the merchant really wants to see is inequalities in supply and demand. A pot is a pot is a pot, sure, but the need, the demand for pots in Whiterun is much higher than the demand for pots in Hooterville, where people have so many laying around they've taken to using them for shoes and doorstops and sheep feeders. They've just got too many of the things in Hooterville. You can buy them for a song, which the merchant does because they know that if they go over the mountains to Whiterun, they can get five to ten times what they paid for them and pocket the difference as profit. By constantly running back and forth trading pots in Whiterun for whatever it is Whiterun produces, cheese wheels say, and then running back the other way to Hooterville and dropping off those cheese wheels, trade routes are developed and soon the Great Cheese Road becomes a major route for both commerce and culture. That's right, culture. Because don't you want to know what sort of place makes such amazing cheeses? Tell us something about the land of cheese you call Whiterun, merchant. And so the merchant does. And maybe he finds that the more and better stories he tells, the better his cheese sales go. So soon, he's telling people about the way folks dress and the sorts of buildings they build and the kinds of things they believe and do. And when he really gets rolling or the cheese sales are particularly slow, he tells them about some sort of beast or monster he pulls out of thin air. 
just to keep the locals entertained and buying cheeses. Then, centuries later, you find yourself fighting it at the dinner table with nothing but dice. But it goes beyond that as well. See, in selling his goods, the merchant has to keep track of purchases and sales in order to know how much of a thing he has, how much he should charge for it, and how much profit he should make. And in so doing, as he interacts with all the people involved in all the various bits of being a merchant, things like new ways of manipulating numbers, called mathematics, and new ways of writing numbers, get spread around to new places and taken up. Even new ways of manufacturing the goods on offer get spread from place to place along the trade routes, and soon, even people in Constantinople are turning out silk shirts, even though China really doesn't want them to. See our episode on sericulture. Meanwhile, the merchants are getting more and more successful, and soon are making so much money that people are starting to get miffed about it. The thing of it is, much like today, people in the ancient world don't like other people making money if it doesn't really look like they're doing much work at all to get it. Why should you be all rich and drive around on fancy imported luxury camels while I'm stuck in this mud patch breaking my back shoveling mud for tuppence a day and having to ride share an old donkey? By the time first the Greeks and then the Romans come around, merchants are being treated worse than even eighth-class citizens. No one likes a merchant when they can't see how all the money is made, which was not to say that you had to do the work yourself in order to be respected. It was still perfectly acceptable to have other people, slaves for instance, do the work for you, as long as you had a lot of them. Note that being disliked didn't prevent merchants from continuing to make a whole lot of money and continuing to grow richer. And no one who had too much of something, or indeed too little of something, minded when the merchant came around willing to adjust the supply. Oh sure, you might object to the price a bit, but if you needed a thing, you needed a thing. You could always try waiting for the next merchant, but good luck with that, because you see, the merchants had got themselves organized. It wasn't too far into the whole business of being a merchant before one of the savvy little devils realized they weren't going to be able to regularly get to all the potential markets they knew about with all the goods that market needed. So in short order, merchants began hiring on other merchants to go around merchanting on their behalf. The head merchant might set themselves up in a place like the Phoenician city of Tyre on the Mediterranean Sea where they could corner the market on Tyrian purple, see our episode, while at the same time having access to markets in most of the known world thanks to the network of merchants working under them. Which is exactly what the Phoenicians did. They were doing so well, they even set up extra cities just to have more places to conduct trade. This sort of thing went on for centuries, until the merchants grew tired of everyone poo-pooing them even though they had all the important stuff, namely money. By the medieval period, merchants were a wealthy and powerful class all their own, and in about the 11th century, they decided to get organized and set up a thing called a guild. Things get a little complicated here, but generally what happened was that the first real guild was set up in the Netherlands in about 1020 CE. However, it was more like a fraternal organization for merchants than it was anything else. Over the next few decades, as additional guilds popped up in France and England, they started to organize and begin making rules about how trade could and could not be conducted. 
Eventually, the rules these guilds came up with were incorporated into the charters of market towns. That is, towns set up by royal charter or custom as places where it was legal to hold a market, which is part of what distinguished a town from a village or city. That's right, not just anyone could set up a market wherever they liked. They needed royal permission. Anyway, eventually, in the early 12th century, someone got the bright idea, in Germany, to set up a sort of guild of merchant guilds, which they called the Hanseatic League. It became so powerful and so wealthy that it owned basically all the trade in and around the Baltic for about the next 300 years. As merchants continued to accrue wealth and power, it soon became possible for them to take on a different role. Some had so much money that they became financiers and organizers. They would hire their own agents to go out and do their merchant duties for them while they organized the logistics of various trading expeditions and were soon able to set up what amounted to merchant-specific colonies in all the world's biggest cities where their agents would conduct business on their behalf. And because of their expanding role in the growing complexity of their business, we owe much to the merchant. It's the merchant you have to thank for such wonders of the modern world as double-entry bookkeeping, commercial accountancy, lines of credit, and insurance. This commercial revolution was made possible in part not just by the complexity of the bookkeeping needed to organize what were, by the 13th and 14th centuries, vast networks of merchants, guilds, and their agents, as well as the various shipments of goods moving back and forth through the world, but also by an increased level of trust in the merchant and his organization and record-keeping that meant, during the Crusades, for instance, you could deposit a quantity of money at one end of your travels and draw it out again at the other without needing to risk it on the journey in between. And because they were so trustworthy and powerful, the merchants could trust you, too, you absolutely will pay back the merchant's loan you use to finance your purchases, go to school, buy that house, whatever. Otherwise, all they have to do is tell every other merchant they know, and that's a lot, that you won't. Here, take this little plastic card. What could possibly go wrong? Also, check out Alasdair Beckett King. He's a comedy merchant. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. We're happy you came along. We are, as ever, supported by our loyal and faithful patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to join them, head over to our homepage at gmwordoftheweek.com, click on the yellow banner at the top, and the rest will, we hope, be obvious. And if Patreon isn't your thing, take a look at the other options available. Any support you might offer is gratefully accepted. And if you're a patron already, thanks. You're pretty okay. Alasdair Beckett King can be found on Twitter at MrABK and on YouTube as Alasdair Beckett King, oddly enough. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian, literally any excuse at all, Casey. 
Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. To guard and to deal with others' goods as one's own is considered as the mark of proper trade among merchants. 